Good morning. Uh, my name is Joey Kraft, and I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here. And it is my responsibility and my joy to open God's Word for us this morning. Uh, we believe the best thing that we can do as a church is those who love Jesus is consistently meditate on God's Word. Remembering God's faithfulness, rehearsing the glorious good news of the gospel, delighting in Christ together. And this week will be no different. Uh, But let me briefly acknowledge this current moment. If you haven't heard, there was an election this past week in this country. And uh, as of yesterday, uh, it's projected that the 46th president will be Joe Biden. And we will pray for President-elect Biden and his vice president Kamala Harris and their administration and the Congress just as we have always done and will always do. This is what God invites us and commands us to do. Our government is important. It's a tool of God. Elections have consequences. The stakes are high. Policies and political agendas matter because they impact real image bearers. And so even this morning, right, there's a mix of emotions. Some of us are sad. Some of us are happy. Some of us are confused, not knowing what to feel. It's natural. No matter where you are, if your candidate won or lost, if you felt like you didn't have a candidate you could vote for, if you're not a citizen of this country and couldn't vote at all, let me remind you of this, Christian brothers and sisters. King Jesus is still on the throne. We might be hopeful for a candidate, but we should never hope in a candidate. We might cast a vote, but let us never give our heart to a mere mortal. And so this election or any election shouldn't cause us to be overly elated or utterly devastated. We don't need to despair about anything, and we don't need to demonize anyone. That's not how Christians act. Beloved, I've been so encouraged by you through this season, all that 2020 has brought. And so I just want to say we continue to have an opportunity to show, yes, these things are important, but they are not ultimate, right? And so Republicans and Democrats, Libertarians and Independents, even nations and countries will come and go, but Christ reigns supreme eternally. And so because of this, we gather and we worship a crucified yet risen Lamb. Restoration Church, we're still united in Jesus. Guess what? Heaven is still our home. Guess what? Our mission hasn't changed. Our Lord hasn't changed. We still exist to make disciples the delight in the supremacy of Christ in Washington, D.C. and beyond. Amen? Let me pray for us and we'll turn our attention to Luke 22. God, you are good, you are glorious, and you are sovereign. And so we come here this morning that we might enjoy you, that we might worship you. Magnify. Holy Spirit, magnify Christ this morning as we gather. And all God's people said, Amen, amen. Well, we've made our way through Luke's gospel, arriving at the final week of Jesus' life. It was Passover week for the Jewish people, and Luke has recounted the events of this week, if you remember that prophetic donkey ride into Jerusalem on Sunday. And we've made our way to the Passover meal on Thursday evening. Last week we saw it's during this meal, Jesus takes the bread And he breaks it. He says to his disciples, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he took the cup saying, this is the cup of the, this cup is poured out for you as the new covenant in my blood. And so imagine the scene. The time is now likely around 10 p.m. in the evening. The disciples sitting on the floor, the remnants of the celebratory meal there before them, the, the, the lamp, the oil burning lamps glowing, probably seemed like so many other meals in Passovers before. 
But Jesus knows what awaits him. In the next 12 hours, he'll receive beatings, endure mockings, experience one sham trial after another. Jesus knows before noon the next day, he'll be hanging on his cross. His final hours are before him. And even this within his mind, what's he do? He turns his attention to the disciples. And he essentially says to them, be watchful, be prayerful, so that you will not give in to temptation. This passage is about temptation and rejection and betrayal. In this passage, we find a Savior who does not reject us so that we might be received when we repent of rejecting him. This passage is pressing a question on our souls this morning. How will you respond when you're tempted to reject Jesus? That'll be our guiding thought. How will you respond when you're tempted to reject Jesus? Look there at verse 31. Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. That you in this passage is actually plural. So it's you all or y'all. Jesus is telling Simon Peter and all the disciples, Satan desires to sift you like weak. In other words, he wants to shake you so violently and vigorously. Why? We get the answer in verse 32. Jesus prays that Peter's faith won't fail. Notice he doesn't pray he won't be tempted. No, he's going to be tempted, but he prays his faith won't fail. That's Satan's aim. He wants to shake Peter, shake all the disciples, so that their faith proves to be chaff blown away by the wind. He wants to destroy their faith, make them doubt God's word and God's goodness. We'll come back to verse 32 in a minute, but for now I want to look at verse 33. How does Peter respond? He essentially says, nope, Jesus, I got this. I'm so strong, nothing will keep me from following you. But Jesus, Jesus presses in. No, Peter, before the rooster crows, that is, before sunrise the next day, you will deny me three times. And we know from other gospel accounts, even after Jesus says this, Peter keeps insisting, no, I won't, no, I won't. And the other disciples said the same. Peter's zeal is commendable. His self-assured pride is not. He's not aware of how vulnerable he actually is. And brothers and sisters, we need to realize that Satan too wants to sift our faith. If we believe the Bible, if we trust Christ, we need to be aware the evil one is real, active, and powerful. So to be clear, we don't need to obsess. So the prince of darkness is not behind your pet goldfish dying or you stubbing your toe. When you lose that parking spot, you don't have to say, well, there goes the devil again. No, he's not the boogeyman like that. Don't obsess. But don't dismiss either. Peter learned this lesson. He would go on and write in 1 Peter 5, chapter 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Scripture goes on and it tells us he divides, he deceives, he destroys, and he inspires disobedience. See, Satan is not a house cat we play with. Then when he gets a bit too feisty, we put him in the cage. 
He's a roaring lion. And he wanted to sift the disciples then and now. He wants us, beloved, to doubt God's word and deny God's goodness. You hear him, some of you in this very moment, you hear him whisper, did God really say? You hear him say, if God is so good, then why is he holding out on you? You hear him say, if God is so trustworthy, why did he let that happen to you? You hear those whispers. And the goal of every temptation is to make faith fail. See, temptations aren't there to satisfy you. They are there to seduce you and take you further. If Satan had his way, every lust would be full-blown adultery. Every mean thought, murder. Every disagreement between Christians, demonizing division within the church. And if Satan can't assault a person this way, here's what he'll try to do. He'll try to shackle their soul with so much shame, guilt, and regret that they begin to believe. It's not even worth trying to follow Jesus. Because if this happened to me, if I did this, he can't really love me. These are his tactics. Satan is powerful. But take heart. He's on a leash. Did you notice that he has to ask? He had to ask to do what he wanted to do? See, any power Satan has comes by permission, not by possession. So don't be afraid, beloved. And don't be naive. Draw near to the one who is truly powerful in all of our vulnerability and weakness. We go to the one who has all strength that we too might be strong. So we need to be convinced of that song, Come Thou Fount, when we sing, Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, O take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. In this moment, Peter would not have sang that. His own self-assessment of his maturity and ability were way off. You might say he couldn't see the cream cheese on his own face. And he wouldn't listen to those who pointed it out. Brothers and sisters, we need to be aware. We need to be aware of our weakness. So then we'll truly be strong. Relying not on our own strength, but the sufficient supply of God's grace. So this week, this week, ask another member of this church, ask a member of your community group, where they might see potential spiritual weakness in your soul. As hard as that is, the next part is even harder. Then listen. And don't immediately defend yourself. Listen. Pray. Seek the Spirit's help to grow in humble godliness. It has a bold confidence, not in your awesomeness, but in the Lord's astounding grace. And when this happens, we'll be ready to face the hardships and temptations that are coming our way. And they're coming, beloved. They're coming. That's what Jesus is getting at in verses 35 through 38. Jesus goes on to prepare his disciples for the coming hardships. First, he says, "Um, remember my past provision. What did you lack? Nothing. That's right. And you were generally well received. Yep. Jesus is reminding them of past grace that they might trust him for future troubles. Notice those words in verse 36. He said to them, but now, but now. 
Jesus is telling his disciples, it's not going to be like it used to be. Something is changing, but now. Well, why? Verse 37, I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors for what is written about me has its fulfillment. Jesus quotes Isaiah 53, 17, telling his disciples he'll soon be treated like a criminal, just as God's word said. See, the the promised savior wouldn't first be received as a king, but counted among the transgressors. And Jesus is saying, listen, this is what's gonna happen to me. It's being fulfilled in me. He's saying, listen, the world has made its decision about me. It has rejected me. And so it is for all who truly follow me. You too will be rejected by the world. And that will tempt you to reject me. The disciples need to be prepared to face this opposition. So he tells them, like, instead of taking no money and knapsacks, grab a little cash, get some Twinkies so you'll be supplied on your way. What about the sword? What's up with that? Well, commentators differ as Jesus being literal or metaphorical. I tend to think he's being literal like the other items mentioned. It'd be weird if it wasn't that way. But Jesus isn't saying to advance the gospel by force. We know that for a myriad of reasons, not the least of which is later on in this passage, he says, put down your sword. And nowhere in the New Testament do we see the disciples with swords trying to advance the gospel. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a readiness Not an aggression and retaliation. It's a readiness. And Jesus seems to rebuke the disciples when he says, it's enough. He's like, listen, we're not focusing on swords. Don't worry about that. That's not the point. The main point is Satan is demanded to have you and you're going to face opposition. Focus on that. Jesus is preparing his disciples and that's why he says in verse 40, what does he say? Pray. Why? that you may not enter into temptation. And just in case they didn't catch it, which evident they didn't because they went to sleep, he says it again. Verse 46 at the end. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. I think generally he's talking about all temptation, but, but given the specific context of this passage and what is happening, I think it's the specific temptation to reject and betray Jesus. And Jesus says, in the face of these temptations, he commands his disciples to pray regularly together. You know, a good translation would be, y'all pray all the time together. That's what he's saying. And he would say something similar to us, I believe. The temptations to betray and reject Jesus are swirling all around us. The world has rejected Jesus. Should those who follow him expect to be well received? Yes, it is true. This rejection too often happens because some who take the name Christian are mean, condescending jerks. That should be rejected. Proud, pompous us versus them, so-called Christians do not represent the Christ they claim to follow. And we see that in this passage. Not everybody who takes the name of Christ is actually a Christian. But if we faithfully follow Jesus, being kind in our convictions, gracious in our words, generous in our actions, humble in our posture, just as you do so well, church, 
you do this well, you'll still be opposed. You cannot straddle both worlds. We cannot love Jesus deeply and expect to be received by the world fully. We can think of the way society presses in on a biblical worldview. What we believe the Bible teaches about marriage, sexuality, gender, the exclusivity of Christ, the offensiveness of grace, the sanctity of human life in the womb and for the immigrant, the reality of heaven and hell. It's not very popular. And if you faithfully follow Jesus, attacks will come from all directions. But it's tempting, isn't it, to want to be well-liked? And Jesus knows that. And I can only imagine how Satan would like to use this explosive cultural moment to sow gospel-distorting, gospel-distorting, Jesus-denying division within churches. Whether the issue is race, politics, this election, COVID, or something else. Here's the, the evil one would love nothing more than for us to become more condemning toward one another than charitable with each other. That's what he wants. The evil one would love nothing more if, if our church began to gather around something other than Jesus because then he could sift and divide us. What are we to do? Well, Jesus tells us at least one way to respond, doesn't he? Pray. Pray repeatedly. Pray corporately. Notice that's what Jesus does in this passage. Does it amaze you that Jesus' response to Satan demanding to have Peter was to pray for him? That should. It's amazing. Jesus prays, and then what's he tell his disciples to do? Pray. See, in prayer, we exhale the toxic fumes of our self-sufficiency while breathing in the oxygen of God's sovereign grace. In prayer, together, we bend our knees under a level Level ground under a cross where Satan was defeated that we might stand walking arm in arm into the sifting winds that blow against us. In prayer, as we pray with one another and for one another, the weeds of jealousy, suspicion, cynicism, condemnation wither away as you hear that brother or sister say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And this is one of the reasons why we pray so much in our Sunday services. It's one of the reasons we, in, we ask you to pray in your community groups. It's one of the reasons we pray at our members' meetings. Prayer reminds us of our shared desire for the King of Kings, our resurrected Lord, to bring the fullness of redemption. That we might soon enjoy the world it was always meant to be, heaven on earth. It's what prayer is doing. So how will you respond? When you're tempted to reject Jesus, will you pray? Will you pray regularly? Will you pray together? But here's a more important question. What happened when Jesus was tempted to reject you? See, ultimately this passage isn't about us and what we need to do. It's about Jesus and what he's done. Our response to him will only make sense after we see how he responded in the garden. Verse 39, we move. We move from the upper room to the Mount of Olives 
The text says, as it was custom. It's a pattern of Jesus. And we know on this mount, there was a garden called Gethsemane. At this point, it's likely around midnight when they arrive. Jesus commands his disciples to pray and walks just a stone's throw away and prays himself. And what does he pray? Look there, verse 42. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And we know from the other gospel accounts, he prays this repeatedly. If you are willing, Father, if you are willing, Father, if you are willing, Father, if there's any other way, if there's any other way, if there's any other way, remove this cup from me. Notice how distraught Jesus is. Verse 44 says he's in agony. Though the night air was cool, he's under such immense pressure that beads of sweat fall from his brow like like they were blood. That's how thick and pervasive and how much anguish he is under. Matthew and Mark tell us, Jesus says, my soul is sorrowful even to the point of death. By the way, if this is made up, you don't have a God like this. You skip this part. There's no sugarcoating the intensity of this moment. Yes, Jesus is truly God in the flesh, and he's truly human. His divinity does not diminish his humanity. Here in the garden, we see the sinless, fully human Jesus, deeply troubled and terribly distressed. And we have to ask, why? Jesus, don't you know there's so many other saints in the Bible and that will come after you that don't act like this in the face of death? What's wrong with you, Jesus? Why are you in such agony? These other saints were calm, had had veins of steel in their soul, and they just said, okay. Jesus isn't agonizing over death. He's not afraid to die. He's agonizing over the kind of death he will die. He'll have to drink the cup. What is that? Well, over and over again, Scripture uses the image of cup to refer to God's just, settled, divine judgment against sin. One example is Psalm 75. For the hand of the Lord, from, for in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Jesus knows he's about to bear God's judgment as a substitutionary sacrifice for the sins of his people, for all those who would turn from the rebellion and trust in him. The bread he just held up would soon become the reality of his broken body on the cross. The wine he just poured out would soon be the reality of the shedding of his blood. And while the physical pain of the crucifixion would be intolerable, nails driven into his hands and feet, crushing bones and ligaments as he hung on the cross, eventually suffocating on his own blood. That was not what captured his attention. Not the physical pain, but the eternal death and damnation he was about to face. Jesus resolved to drink the cup of God's wrath for our rebellion through the experience and limitations of human weakness. For all of eternity, Jesus enjoyed sweet intimacy with the Father in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. 
And now he would cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The one who is perfect, holy, unblemished, and pure would take guilt, shame, and the curse of sin on himself. And he cries out, Father, if there's any other way. Yet God so loved the world, he remained silent. The Father loves us so much, he sent his Son to die for us. Jesus loves his own so much, he did it willingly. Jesus had the opportunity to write right here to reject you, beloved. To reject me. But he doesn't. Yet not my will, but yours be done. His desire to be spared is overcome by his desire to spend eternity with us. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Here's what we see in the garden. Unmeasurable, lavish love of Jesus in obedience to the Father to bring about our redemption. I can't help but think of another man in another garden. Adam. And God says to this man, if you obey me, you will live. He doesn't obey. In this garden, Jesus hears, if you obey me, you will die. And he obeys. Beloved, behold your Savior. Behold your Savior in his darkest hour. His love for you remains resolved. In this moment, in this moment, Jesus decided he wouldn't reject you, but be rejected for you. Jesus would be forsaken that you might be forgiven. Jesus would be abandoned that you might be adopted. Jesus would be betrayed that you might be beloved. Jesus took wrath and punishment from God so you'd be welcomed into the presence of God. Jesus drank the cup empty to the very last drop that your cup of grace might run over. Jesus endured hell all alone so we could enjoy him in heaven all together. Jesus died beloved, so we might live. And here we see the weight of sin. It's worse than we think. Here we savor the wonder of grace. It's better than we could imagine. He paid for your sin, beloved, and he's present in your pain. Notice this, that Jesus endured dark hours, experiencing deep agony, prayed what seemed like unanswered prayers. He's deserted by his closest friends. He feels alone, rejected by his closest companions. So Jesus saves us and he can sympathize with us. Isn't it comforting to know in a world with so much chaos, brokenness, sin and suffering, we don't have to worship a God who's immune to it. Draw near to Christ, brothers and sisters, no matter what troubles assault your soul. As a church family, let's enter into each other's hardships just as Christ did. 
And here's the thing. When you enter into that, don't feel like you have to tell the person, I understand what you're going through. The fact is, you probably don't. But you can tell them Jesus does. He does understand. So comfort them with Christ. He remained resolved. Yes, we live in a broken world, but we point each other to Jesus and say, hey, we have hope in a better one. We have hope in a better one. For my friends not trusting in Christ, I'm so thankful that you've gathered with us this morning. And I pray you see two things. The offensiveness of Christ and the offer of Christ. Jesus is saying that my sin, your sin, is so heinous to a holy God, there's no hope for salvation unless he dies in your place. Let's be honest. That's offensive. We might think, I'm, I mean, I'm not perfect, but I'm not that bad. I mean, really? But Jesus says, no. You're that spiritually bankrupt left to yourself. That's offensive. But he doesn't stop there, praise be to God. He offers. He says, our rebellion deserves death. Then he says, guess what? I'm willing to die for you if you'd repent of your rejection of me and and trust me, trust my death as your own. Will you do that this morning? Will Will you trust Christ? What happens if you don't? What happens if you do? We see that in the rest of this passage. We see two rejections of Jesus, two responses. Let's look at each. First, we have Judas. So verse 47 reminds us Judas is one of the 12. He's one of the 12. Yet has agreed to betray his supposed friend and savior. The religious leaders have found some inside help to complete their plot to kill Jesus. And I can only imagine what, what Judas says to them, these religious leaders. He probably says, like, saying, listen, Jesus has this favored spot on the mount, the Garden of Gethsemane. We've been going there every night this Passover week. And so I'll lead you up there. Uh, they're probably singing or praying or, or teaching the Bible or something like that. That's what we do up there. But it's going to be dark, and you're, you may not know exactly which one Jesus is. So to identify him to you, what I'll do is I'll go up and I'll kiss Jesus on the cheek. The plan begins to unfold. Yet Jesus is expecting them. He's done praying. He's resolved to go to the cross at the hands of his betrayer. This is no surprise attack. Jesus is fully in control. Remember back in chapter 9, what do we see? Chapter 9, verse 51. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. He just told us in the upper room, I'm going to be betrayed. It's important to see that Jesus is no passive victim. He's a willing sacrifice. And so Judas arrives to kiss Jesus on the cheek, meant to be a sign of intimacy and friendship. But this kiss on the cheek was a stab in the heart. And so Jesus says, verse 48, Judas, would you betray the son of man with a kiss? Do you see what Jesus is doing even here? He's inviting Judas to search his own heart. He's telling Judas, like, listen, even in this moment, I'm not rejecting you, Judas. You're rejecting me. The son of man. The promised Messiah. Even in the midst of personal betrayal, Jesus does not immediately condemn Judas. How could you do this? What are you doing? 
He offers heart-probing grace. He wants Judas to see his rebellion for what it is, that he might confess it and repent of it. Because Jesus is ready for the cross. The disciples don't get it. They're ready for war. So we know one of them, it's Peter, takes out his sword and swings, cutting off the ear of one of Jesus' enemies. But what does Jesus do? He miraculously heals the servant. Get this, beloved. The last thing Jesus does with his hands before they're bound as an innocent criminal is heal a guilty man. Another little glimpse of grace. Will these betrayers, seeing this grace, will they stop doing what they're doing and repent and trust Christ? Would they change? No, verse 54. They seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. Their hearts are so hardened. In the face of miraculous grace, they continue to deny him. You can go read Matthew's account of this, and we know that Judas's life ends in destruction. And so it is with all who finally reject Christ. But it doesn't have to be like that. Even those who reject Jesus, there's hope and for healing, forgiveness, and freedom. That's exactly what we see in Peter. So the religious leaders are dragging Peter, they're dragging Jesus to the high priest's house, and verse 54 tells us Peter followed. Peter loves Jesus. He's passionate and zealous. But his self-assurance was short-lived. Fear of man sets in. And Jesus' prediction from verse 34 becomes a reality. Peter's first denial in verse 56 and 57. A servant girl mentions Peter was with Jesus. But Peter claims not to know Jesus. Second denial, verse 58. Peter's, a man says to Peter, you are, you are one of them, one of the disciples, he's saying. Peter said, man, I'm not. You see what just happened? Peter first denied Jesus. Now he denies Jesus and his people. About an hour goes by. Another person links Peter to Jesus. Peter responds, I don't know what you're talking about. Now we've moved to complete, total, full denial of knowing anything or anyone. Do you see what just happened? Peter went from claiming to give his life for Jesus to denying knowing anything about Jesus or his people. And here we see another truth about sin. One sin easily gives way to another. It's like a down escalator. You take a step, and before you know it, you're at the bottom. Sin takes, takes you places you never thought you'd go. If you're like me, in this moment, you're tempted to stand and proud judgment over Peter. I would never do that. Let me invite us, not to do that, but to stand humbly next to him. See, the ability to sin runs deep. That's true for Peter and it's true for us. For my non-Christian friends, I hope you see that that Christians don't or at least shouldn't think that we are better than others. We're, We're all kinds of messed up. All kinds of messed up. The church is never meant to be a dollhouse where you have this fake perfection and airbrushed smiles. It's a hospital for deeply flawed people finding hope and salvation, forgiveness and freedom and joy in Christ. So Christian brothers and sisters, let me remind us that that no matter how long you have been following Jesus, 
no matter how mature you think you are, none of us, me or you, none of us are beyond the reach of sin. The moment we think, how could they? I never would. Instead of save the grace of God, there go I. We're in trouble. So is all lost? Absolutely not. Look at this. After Peter denies the Lord, the rooster crows just as he said it would. Verse 61. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. It's a look of compassion, not condemnation. A look of intimate, sweet, loving friendship. That's why what happens next happens. Peter sees the Lord's tender face, remembers the Lord's word. Verse 62. And he went out and wept bitterly. Peter could not have imagined a worse sin than the one he just committed. Persistently denied his friend and savior. Think of all the shame and guilt he must have felt. If anybody's behavior could disqualify someone from being a child of God, this is it. But it didn't. Unlike Judas, Peter owned his sin. He hates the ugliness of it. He realizes not that he's just broke the Lord's rules, but he's broke the Lord's heart. Peter's sin might have surprised him, but it didn't surprise God. Remember verse 32. Told you I was coming back. Look at verse 32. This, this verse has just been so sweet to my soul this week. Jesus says to Peter, I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when, not if, when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus knows Peter's faith will not fail. He might fail, but his faith won't. He knows his grace will lead Peter to turn again. And why does he know this? Because he's praying for Peter. He's praying for Peter by name that he might endure and enjoy fellowship with him and even be used by him to strengthen the other disciples. Notice, this is amazing. Notice Jesus promises forgiveness and reconciliation before Peter denies him. God knows our failures. You might be surprised by the way you rebel against God, but God isn't. He knows all of them. And he still extends lavish, abundant, forgiving, reconciling, soul-strengthening, heaven-purchasing grace. And then, in his merciful sovereignty, he uses our past to strengthen others. It's amazing. Your rebellion might be vile, but Jesus is still victorious. There's more tender mercy in God's heart than there is sin in you, past, present, or future. For those trusting in Christ alone to be reconciled back to God, Jesus, get this, Jesus is interceding for you, praying for you by name. Hebrews 7.25 says it this way. He is able to save to the uttermost. Oh, that's a good word. To the uttermost. Those who draw near to him, draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Whew. See, the good news of the gospel isn't Jesus died for your sins. The good news of the gospel is Jesus died for your sins and rose again. He is alive. He purchased us. He's present within us in our pain 
and he's praying for us. Here's what's amazing, beloved. Even when you are not praying for yourself, Jesus is praying for you. That's crazy. So we sing prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. But that's not all we sing. We also sing this, and we're going to sing it in a moment. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold, but guess what? Guess what? Wonder of wonders. He will hold me fast. How will you respond? Will you remember and rehearse the soul-staggering news that Jesus does not reject you, but was rejected for you? Will you confess your sins knowing Jesus drank the cup empty so that you might delight in God eternally? Will you remember that he's praying for you right now? Then, beloved, will you go strengthen your brothers and sisters with this wonderful gospel news? If you're not trusting in Christ, we invite you into this glorious gospel. Talk to the friend who brought you. Come talk to me. This is the God we worship who's redeemed us. Let's pray. Lord, we're amazed at your marvelous grace. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would take the truth of this passage and press it deep on our soul, that we would love Jesus deeply, enjoy him together as a church family. Thank you, Jesus, that you didn't reject us when we repent of rejecting you. May this gospel stir our affections. Make us love you and make us love others. Pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.